Chapter Ten of The Wolf Hunters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Doughty. The Wolf Hunters by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Ten. Roderick explores the chasm. To Rod, the blazing pine seemed to be but a short distance away, a mile, perhaps a little more. In the silence of the two Indians, as they contemplated the strange fire, he read an ominous meaning. In Mukoki's eyes was a dull, sullen glare, not unlike that which fills the orbs of a wild beast in a moment of deadly anger. Wabi's face was filled with an eager flush, and three times, Rod observed, he turned eyes strangely burning with some unnatural passion upon Mukoki. Slowly, even as the instincts of his race had aroused the latent brutish love of slaughter and the chase in the tamed wolf, the long-smothered instincts of these human children of the forest began to betray themselves in their bronzed countenances. Rod watched, and he was thrilled to the soul. Back at the old cabin they had declared war upon the Woongas. Both Mukoki and Wabigoon had slipped their leashes that had long restrained them from meeting the first vengeance upon their enemies. Now the opportunity had come. For five minutes the great pine blazed and then died away until it was only a smouldering tower of light. Still Mukoki gazed, speechless and grim, out into the distance of the night. At last Wabi broke the silence. How far away is it, Muki? Three mile, answered the old warrior without hesitation. We could make it in forty minutes. Yes. Wabi turned to Rod. "'You can find your own way back to camp alone, can't you?' he asked. "'Not if you're going over there,' declared the white boy. "'I'm going with you.' Mukoki broke in upon them with a harsh, disappointed laugh. "'No go! No go over there!' He spoke with emphasis and shook his head. "'We lose pine in five minutes. No find Woonga camp. Make big trail for Woongas to see in morning. Better wait. Follow em trail in day. Then shoot!' Rod found immense relief in the old Indian's decision. He did not fear a fight. In fact, he was a little too anxious to meet the outlaws who had stolen his gun, now that they had determined upon opening fire on sight. But in this instance he was possessed of the cooler judgment of his race. He believed that as yet the Woongas were not aware of their presence in this region, and that there was still a large possibility of the renegades travelling northward beyond their trapping sphere. He hoped that this would be the case, in spite of his desire to recapture his gun. A scrimmage with the Woongas just now would spoil the plans he had made for discovering gold. The skeleton mine, as he had come to call it, now absorbed his thoughts beyond everything else. He felt confident that he would discover the lost treasure ground if given time, and he was just as confident that if war was once begun between themselves and the Woongas it would mean disaster or quick flight from the country. Even Wabi, worked up more in battle enthusiasm than by gold fever, conceded that if half of the Woongas were in this country they were much too powerful for them to cope with successfully, especially as one of them was without a rifle. It was therefore with inward exultation that Rod saw the project of attack dropped, and Mukoki and Wabigoon proceed with their short task of scalping the seven wolves. During this operation Wolf was allowed to feast upon the carcass of the buck. That night there was but little sleep in the old cabin. It was two o'clock when the hunters arrived in camp, 
and from that hour until nearly four they sat about the hot stove making plans for the day that was nearly at hand. Rod could but contrast the excitement that now had taken possession of them with the tranquil joy with which they had first taken up their abode in this dip in the hilltop. And how different were their plans from those of two or three days ago! Not one of them now but realized their peril. They were in an ideal hunting range, but it was evidently very near, if not actually in, the Woonga country. At any moment they might be forced to fight for their lives or abandon their camp, and perhaps they would be compelled to do both. So the gathering about the stove was in reality a small council of war. It was decided that the old cabin should immediately be put into a condition of defence, with a loophole on each side, strong new bars at the door, and with a thick barricade near at hand that could be quickly fitted against the window in case of attack. Until the wall clouds cleared away, if they cleared at all, the camp would be continually guarded by one of the hunters, and with this garrison would be left both of the heavy revolvers. At dawn or a little later, Mukoki would set out upon Wabi's trap-line, both to become acquainted with it, and to extend the line of traps, while later in the day the Indian youth would follow Mukoki's line, visiting the houses already built, and setting other traps. This scheme left to Rod the first day's watch in camp. Mukoki aroused himself from his short sleep with the first approach of dawn, but did not awaken his tired companions until breakfast was ready. When the meal was finished he seized the gun and signified his intention of visiting the mink traps just beyond the hill, before leaving on his long day's trail. Rod at once joined him, leaving Wobby to wash the dishes. They were shortly within view of the trap-houses near the creek. Instinctively the eyes of both rested upon these houses, and neither gave very close attention to the country ahead or about them. As a result, both were exceedingly startled when they heard a huge snort and a great crunching in the deep snow close beside them. From out of a small growth of alders had dashed a big bull moose, who was now tearing with the speed of a horse up the hillside toward the hidden camp, evidently seeking the quick shelter of the dip. "'Wait him! Get top of hill!' shouted Mukoki, swinging his rifle to his shoulder. "'Wait!' It was a beautiful shot and Rod was tempted to ignore the old Indian's advice. But he knew there was some good reason for it, so he held his trembling finger. Hardly had the animal's huge antlered head risen to the skyline when Mukoki shouted again, and the young hunter pressed the trigger of his automatic gun three times in rapid succession. It was a short shot, not more than two hundred yards, and Mukoki fired but once, just as the bull mounted the hilltop. The next instant the moose was gone, and Rod was just about to dash in pursuit when his companion caught him by the arm. "'We got him!' he grinned. "'He run downhill, then fall very close to camp. Very good scheme. Wait him get on top hill. No have to carry meat far.' As coolly as though nothing had happened, the Indian turned again in the direction of the traps. Rod stood as though he had been nailed to the spot, his mouth half open in astonishment. "'We go see traps!' urged Mukoki. Find Moose dead when we go back. But Roderick Drew, who had hunted nothing larger than house-rats in his own city, was not the young man to see the logic of this reasoning, and before Mukoki could open his mouth again he was hurrying up the hill. On its summit he saw a huge torn-up blotch in the snow, spattered with blood, where the moose had fallen first after the shots, and at the foot of the hill, as the Indian had predicted, the great animal lay dead. 
Wobby was hastening across the lake, attracted by the shots, and both reached the slain bull at about the same time. Rod quickly perceived that three shots had taken effect. One, which was undoubtedly Mukoki's carefully directed ball, in a vital spot between the foreleg and two through the body. The fact that two of his own shots had taken good effect filled the white youth with enthusiasm, and he was still gesticulating excitedly in describing the bull's flight to Wobby when the old Indian came over the hill, grinning broadly and holding up for their inspection a magnificent mink. The day could not have begun more auspiciously for the hunters, and by the time Mukoki was ready to leave upon his long trail, the adventurers were in buoyant spirits. The distressing fears of the preceding night being somewhat dispelled by their present good fortune, and the glorious day which now broke in full splendour upon the wilderness. Until their early dinner, Wobby remained in camp, securing certain parts of the moose and assisting Rod in putting the cabin into a state of defence according to their previous plans. It was not yet noon when he started over Mukoki's trap-line. Left to his own uninterrupted thoughts, Rod's mind was once more absorbed in his scheme of exploring the mysterious chasm. He had noticed during his inspection from the top of the ridge that the winter snows had as yet fallen but little in the gloomy gulch between the mountains, and he was eager to attempt his adventure before either snows came, or the fierce blizzards of December filled the chasm with drifts. Later in the afternoon he brought forth the buckskin bag from a niche in the log wall where it had been concealed, and one after another carefully examined the golden nuggets. He found, as he had expected, that they were worn to exceeding smoothness and that every edge had been dulled and rounded. Rod's favourite study in school had been a minor branch of geology and mineralogy, and he knew that only running water would work this smoothness. He was therefore confident that the nuggets had been discovered in or on the edge of a running stream, and that stream, he was sure, was the one in the chasm. But Rod's plans for an early investigation were doomed to disappointment. Late that day both Mukoki and Wobby returned, the latter with a red fox and another mink, the former with a fisher, which reminded Rod of a dog just growing out of puppyhood, and another story of strange trail that renewed their former apprehensions. The old Indian had discovered the remains of the burned jack-pine, and about it were the snowshoe tracks of three Indians. One of these trails came from the north and two from the west, which led him to believe that the pine had been fired as a signal to call the two. At the very end of their trap-line, which extended about four miles from the camp, a single snowshoe trail had cut across at right angles, also swinging into the north. These discoveries necessitated a new arrangement of the plans that had been made the preceding night. Hereafter it was agreed, only one trap-line would be visited each day, and by two of the hunters in company, both armed with rifles. Rod saw that this meant the abandonment of his scheme for exploring the chasm, at least for the present. Day after day now passed without evidences of new trails, and each day added to the hopes of the adventurers that they were at last to be left alone in the country. Never had Mukoki or Wabigoon been in a better trapping-ground, and every visit to their lines added to their hoard of furs. If left unmolested, it was plainly evident that they would take a small fortune back to Wabinush House with them early in the spring. Besides many mink, several fisher, two red foxes and a link, they added two fine cross-foxes and three wolf-scalps to their treasure during the next three weeks. Rod began to think occasionally of the joy their successes would bring to the little home hundreds of miles away, 
where he knew that the mother was waiting and praying for him every day of her life. And there were times, too, when he found himself counting the days that must still elapse before he returned to Minnetaki and the post. But at no time did he give up his determination to explore the chasm. From the first, Mukoki and Wabigoon still regarded this project with little favour, declaring the impossibility of discovering gold under snow, even though gold was there. So Rod waited and watched for an opportunity to make the search alone, saying nothing about his plans. On a beautiful day late in December, when the sun rose with dazzling brightness, his opportunity came. Wabi was to remain in camp, and Mukoki, who was again of the belief that they were safe from the Woongas, was to follow one of the trap-lines alone. Supplying himself well with food, taking Wabi's rifle, a double allowance of cartridges, a knife, belt-axe, and a heavy blanket from his pack, Rod set out for the chasm. Wabi laughed as he stood in the doorway to see him off. "'Good luck to you, Rod. Hope you find gold!' he cried gaily, waving a final good-bye with his hand. "'If I don't return to-night, don't you fellows worry about me,' called back the youth. If things look promising, I may camp in the chasm and take up the hunt again in the morning." He now passed quickly into the second ridge, knowing from previous experience that it would be impossible to make a descent into the gulch from the first mountain. This range, a mile south from the camp, had not been explored by the hunters, but Rod was sure that there was no danger of losing himself, as long as he followed along the edge of the chasm, which was in itself a constant and infallible guide. Much to his disappointment he found that the southern walls of this mysterious break between the mountains were as precipitous as those on the opposite side, and for two hours he looked in vain for a place where he might climb down. The country was now becoming densely wooded, and he was constantly encountering signs of big game, but he paid little attention to these. Finally he came to a point where the forest swept over and down the steep side of the mountain and to his great joy he saw that by strapping his snowshoes to his back and making good use of his hands, it was possible for him to make a descent. Fifteen minutes later, breathless but triumphant, he stood at the bottom of the chasm. On his right rose the strip of cedar forest, on his left he was shut in by towering walls of black and shattered rock. At his feet was the little stream which had played such an important part in his golden dreams frozen in places, and in others kept clear of ice by the swiftness of its current. A little ahead of him was that gloomy, sunless part of the chasm into which he had peered so often from the top of the ridge on the north. As he advanced step by step into its mysterious silence, his eyes alert, his nerves stretched to a tension of the keenest expectancy, there crept over him a feeling that he was invading that enchanted territory which, even at this moment might be guarded by the spirits of the two mortals who had died because of the treasure it held. Narrower and narrower became the walls high over his head. Not a ray of sunshine penetrated into the soulless gloom. Not a leaf shivered in the still air. The creek gurgled and spattered among its rocks without the note of a bird or the chirp of a squirrel to interrupt its monotony. Everything was dead. Now and then Rod could hear the wind whispering over the top of the chasm, but not a breath of it came down to him. Under his feet was only sufficient snow to deaden his own footsteps, and he still carried his snowshoes upon his back. Suddenly, from the thick gloom that hung under one of the craggy walls, there came a thundering, 
unearthly sound that made him stop. His rifle swung half to shoulder. He saw that he had disturbed a great owl, and passed on. Now and then he paused beside the creek, and took up handful after handful of its pebbles, his heart beating high with hope at every new gleam he caught among them, and never sinking to disappointment, though he found no gold. The gold was here. Somewhere. He was as certain of that as he was of the fact that he was living, and searching for it. Everything assured him of that, the towering masses of cleft rock, whole walls seeming about to crumble into ruin, the broad margins of pebbles along the creek, everything, to the very stillness and mystery of the air, spoke this as the abode of the skeleton's secret. It was this inexplicable something, this unseen, mysterious element hovering in the air that caused the white youth to advance step by step, silently, cautiously, as though the slightest sound under his feet might awaken the deadliest of enemies. And it was because of this stealth in his progress that he came very close upon something that was living, and without startling it. Less than fifty yards ahead of him he saw an object moving slowly among the rocks. It was a fox. Even before the animal had detected his presence, he had aimed and fired. Thunderous echoes rose up about him. They rolled down the chasm, volume upon volume, until in the ghostly gloom between the mountain walls he stood and listened, a nervous shiver catching him once or twice. Not until the last echo had died away did he approach where the fox lay upon the snow. It was not red. It was not black. It was not... His heart gave a big, excited thump. The bleeding creature at his feet was the most beautiful animal he had ever seen, and the tip of its thick black fur was silver-grey. Then, in that lonely chasm, there went up a great human whoop of joy. A silver fox! Rod spoke the words aloud. For five minutes he stood and looked upon his prize. He held it up and stroked it and from what Wabi and Mukoki had told him, he knew that the silken pelt of this creature was worth more to them than all the furs at the camp together. He made no effort to skin it, but put the animal in his pack and resumed his slow, noiseless exploration of the gulch. He had now passed beyond those points in the range from which he had looked down into this narrow, shut-in world. Ever more wild and gloomy became the chasm, at times the two walls of rock seemed almost to meet far above his head. Under gigantic overhanging crags there lurked the shadows of night. Fascinated by the grandeur and loneliness of the scenes through which he was passing, Rod forgot the travel of time. Mile after mile he continued his tireless trail. He had no inclination to eat. He stopped only once at the creek to drink and when he looked at his watch, he was astonished to find it was three o'clock in the afternoon. It was now too late to think of returning to camp. Within an hour, the day gloom of the chasm would be thickening into that of night. So Rod stopped at the first good campsite, threw off his pack, and proceeded with the building of a cedar shelter. Not until this was completed, and a sufficient supply of wood for the night's fire was at hand, did he begin getting supper. He had brought a pail with him, and soon the appetizing odours of boiling coffee and broiling moose sirloins filled the air. Night had fallen between the mountain walls by the time Rod sat down to his meal. End of chapter 10 Recording by Adam Doughty, Kerry, New Zealand